2: Everywhere you need to be, I am Brandon Scoopy So Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Scoop B, Instagram and Snapchat, at Scoop underscore B, and make sure to subscribe to the Scoop B Radio podcast. Uh, and on the line right now is a guy that is pretty much NBA <laughs> over the last 30 years. Is none other than season NBA referee, uh, Derek Stafford, uh, on the line.
0: Brother Stafford, what's going on? Oh, uh, everything's going on. Just now can enjoy the playoffs as a regular fan like you guys.
2: <laughs> so for me, I know that as a journalist, um, sometimes I'll look at somebody who's a sideline reporter and I'll be like, oh, that was a good question. Oh, that was a bad question. From your perspective as a, as a, as a referee, uh, you've been doing it for over 30 years. Um, for someone that's just like yourself, is it hard to sit back and actually be a fan of the game? When, when you see things that may be off or stuff that, you know, was actually good? Like, is it hard to separate being a referee versus being a fan?
0: Well, when you're a referee, you strictly try to look at every game from a referee perspective. You're trying to see what plays they missed, maybe why they missed that play, the plays they got right. Uh, you look at situations that come up and see how they handled them. Uh, did they follow the rules to the T? Uh, did they make a mistake? And if they did, if it's something that right away you don't know the answer to, you might grab your rule book and go make sure. I think I have the best of both worlds right now. I can actually watch the game. I can evaluate the guys without being too critical. I don't want to be very critical, but I can look at them with an objective eye. And then I can also enjoy, enjoy the beauty of the game. I can enjoy the, the players competing. I can, I can appreciate the coaches griping and arguing. So now I, I get to enjoy it both ways. In today's game, it seems like players and referees
2: are arguing more. Do you see a difference from during your time when you did it versus what you see on TV now? Is it all the same?
0: You know that that's a tough question, and the reason I say that is because I mean players have always complained to a certain extent. Guys have always gotten technical files. I don't know if the technical files are up or down. Uh, I don't know the analytics. But I think, uh, social media now, you know, we have so many people analyzing the game from all over the world, different podcasts, and, and now you have ESPN going full blast. Now you have Fox Sport going full blast. So everybody's looking for something. And I think, you know, the players are now so visible and everything is out there. I think they're easier. It's easier now for them to get a little more embarrassed than the players did in the past. Hmm. So yeah, I think the complainant is probably a little more, uh, just because of the social attention. Do you also think that there's potentially um,
2: a generational gap? You know, I, I think a lot of times millennials are said to just be indulged a lot more. Do you do you think there's a difference in say you you, you retired ref you've done it for over thirty years? There's a difference between say a generation of Michael who just was quiet and played versus a generation that wants everything everything to be explained to them. Do you see something different between those two generations?
0: Oh yeah, the, the home training is, is certainly different. The teacher-student relationship is different. The coach-athlete relationship is different. Hey, when I was in school, you know, the janitor might take you in the bathroom and, and, and paddle your butt. So, <laughs> you know, everybody, you know, did whatever they thought was best to keep you under control now you have to be careful what you say how you say it and so i think kids today are growing up being able to now question more you know i can always remember my teacher or somebody said do it because i said so and that was the end of it you know you you knew not to ask again and you do not not to ask the next time but this generation they they want to be heard they want to be explained to and i don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing i'm not here to to, to generalize or, or make sure. a decision on that, but it's certainly to a point now where everybody wants to be
2: heard. Everybody. From a from a scoopy radio on the Baby line with uh, seasoned uh, retired uh, NBA referee Jerry Stafford. One thing that I found interesting was the, the '90s, the mid '90s, particularly '96. Um, Allen Iverson and, and hip hop ruled the world, but basketball was still being played. From your perspective, palming the ball, do you think um, that that rule, or what Iverson brought to the table kind of changed and revolutionized the game. I've always thought from a, from a referee's perspective, how do you distinguish between palming uh, braces versus the crossover dribble versus, like, how do you look at palming? Do you think that the referees let things go
0: more, or do you think that um, there? what is your perspective on the palming? You know, what uh, I think what a lot of fans don't understand, and hopefully the ones on your show now, we'll have a better idea as to how this works. Uh, we are an organization that can write the rules the way we see fit. And when Mm -hmm. I say that, I mean, the board of governors, when they get together and meet with the owners and the players, if they decide that they want to change something, or if they decide that they want to make something not as important as it was maybe in high school and in college, they can do that. So our palming rule, uh, was written so that we would understand that they did not want the ball to pause and hmm. allow a person to now take it from one end to the other. So what people call a carry, is not necessarily a carry in our game because just because your hand gets under the ball a little bit doesn't make it a carry. So sure. the ball hesitate long enough for you now to almost lift it and carry it to the other side. And so that's why you know a lot of people see a carry that probably would be called in high school, it's not actually a violation in the pros. <laughs>
2: right on line with Derek Stafford. Um I remember watching during the NBA season, James Harden um had a double step back that many people call traveling. Um the crowd dribble, the double step back, I think is such a a, a unique look at just how the, the, the game of basketball has changed. Uh how do you draw the line between a, a, a Eurostep being a travel and a crab trip will a travel? Do you do you do you think that the game has just evolved and guys have just been more crafty with their footwork?
0: Well, our guys certainly work a lot on their footwork. They they work on their footwork tremendously. They work on new the moves. They work on new shots. This is what they do. I mean, they're the best in the world at what they do, and they put the time in. Mm-hmm. And and what our league does now, we we take videotape. The Board of Governors will meet with certain guys, you know, some referees, some coaches, and they will decide what's legal and what's not legal. The difficulty in the, in, in the James Harden and the difficulty in the Euro is that we have to establish when that player gained possession. So that first step doesn't actually start until he gains possession. And so a guy can slowly bring the ball up out of his dribble So when did you say he had possession? Did you say he had possession when he first Mm. grabbed it? Did you say he had possession when he pulled it up to his waist? Did you say he had possession? And they do it so fast, and then we take it now, our board of governors and other people take it, slow it down, put it in slow motion, and then they determine to us when they decide that it's possession. Now, for us, the difficulty for us is each one of us may see possession just a little bit different. So James may do the same play and somebody may call it travel, and the next guy will say, no, well, he didn't gain possession at that moment, so he was allowed that first step where somebody might say it was two steps. And that's where the judgment comes in. People kind of want referees to all be the same, Mm -hmm. but that's impossible. Number one, we're looking at the game from different angles. We're looking at it with different levels of experience. And even though we work extremely hard to try to all see it the same way, it's virtually impossible for us to be exact. I'm
2: curious, when you when you have a, a player who is angry, you know, I grew up, you don't mix fire with fire, uh, you, you kind of smooth talk or you, or, you, or you slowly walk. If you don't, you know, obviously you hold as a referee all the power at the end of the day. Can you think of an example um, where you've had a superstar or a player come to you with, I guess my question is, who has been the most smooth in, um, airing out how they felt without toting the line of, of, of disrespect.
0: Uh, right off the top of my head without giving it a whole lot of thought would probably be Jordan. Mm. Mm. One thing about Mike, Mike studied the rules probably as much as anybody. So he knew the rules. Mm -hmm. So even though he may have been a little upset, he would be asking you a question that he would want to answer to. And then a lot Mm -hmm. of times he would, he would know the answer. Mm Mm-hmm. So he was pretty smooth out here approach you because you right away knew that he knew the rules, and so you probably gave him a little more leeway than you would give somebody else who was just spouting off and then and had no clue about what they were talking about. Do you think that's why
2: he gets the maybe that the characterization as he he won the refs over because he he knew the line and he knew how to come about it in a in a diplomatic sort of
0: way. Yeah, Mike. Mike didn't get many technical fouls. You know, when he wanted one, you knew it wasn't wasn't any question about it. Uh, but I will tell people, you know, he got the same treatment as a lot of a lot of other great players. I mean, great players don't really need breaks. Hmm. It may appear that they're getting breaks, they don't need them. He played through plays. He played over plays. He played under plays. I mean, Mike was just a smart basketball player. So he stayed out of foul trouble. He knew his number of fouls. He knew when the other team was in the county. So there were so many things that he knew that other people didn't know. I mean, I would have to sit down with people and look at tape to actually mm-hmm. show them why he didn't get this call or why he didn't get that call. And I think then they would realize that, at the end of the day, Michael probably got didn't get any more calls than anybody else that handled the ball as much as he did. How does somebody become an NBA ref? Uh, now it's uh, it's pretty laid out how they do it. They have, uh, you can send a letter to the NBA. They have people now that will contact you. They have scouts to go out and look at people work games, just like the teams look at players. Uh, they'll put you in a database to see where you're working. They'll invite you to summer camp, and they'll inv- evaluate you in summer camp. They'll bring you to the classroom where they can start teaching you the way we referee the basketball game, our system, our mechanics, the rules, so it's 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 pretty laid out. But the first thing you have to do, I tell people all the time, is the first step is to try to join a high school association, and that's easy. You can find any high school association any area, join the association, start officiating, and then at that point, it de- it's determined by how hard you, how hard you want to work and and what level you want to go to. Derek
2: Stafford on the line with Scoopy Radio. You officiated seven NBA finals.
0: I think. may have been nine, I think. But anyway, (laughs) it's close. To be honest with you, I don't even even keep up with it. But I I, I thought it was nine. It could be seven. I remember watching the
2: NBA on NBC and just hearing Marv Albert's uh, powerful voice. Derek Stafford is officiated. Uh, For you, um, if you could name two of your most memorable finals that you uh, officiated, um, and you kind of just looked outside of yourself and was like, wow. Do any of those – any two stand out to you?
0: You said finals? Yeah. Uh, not really. You know, every finals game is just – it's so much tension. It's so much on the line. So your level of con- concentration is at a point where you just – you're out there, and, you, and you're sort of in the days trying to get everything right. I mean, players call it the zone. For me, that's where I was. I was zoned out just to try to get every play right. Of course, I remember my first one, which was which was Orlando, the Lakers. So that one always stick out of my mind, and I know my last one was last year, Golden State-Cleveland. So, but the games are so intense, and, and they play so hard because now they're finally at that point where a champion is going to be declared to where, you know, they were all tough and they all and they all stand out to be honest with you. When you look at the Golden State Warriors, um,
2: the, everybody's playing small ball now. I so feel like they've dictated how the NBA is being played now. Um you've gone from the center position being a dominant position like Shaq. Um you you've gone from, you know, a point guard league for a while and now you just see European basketball uh kind of permeating into uh the NBA with the Golden State Warriors when you look at Kevin Durant what to you from a from just a fan perspective not even from a from a um referee
0: perspective what stands out to you his size and ability to shoot and handle the basketball
2: when you look at the Golden State Warriors at large um do you think that um I guess overall, the big man, the big man position, will ever be dominant in any time soon because it seems like big men are now tweeners. Do you think we'll ever go back to a to a day and age where the big man
0: will be ruling the world like Shaq did? It's going to be extremely difficult because you know so many teams have tried to copy Golden State, so mm-hmm. now it's filtered down to the high schools and the colleges, if you remember when you were probably playing ball, everybody took their big guy, put him in the post, and started working on the post moves. Mm-hmm. Well, so he was, he was reared to be a low post player. Now, in the AU programs, the youth league programs, everybody's learning how to handle the ball. Everybody's shooting from the outside. So nobody's really setting up down low. So I don't, it, it's hard to even imagine right now that the game going back, to where it was the problem with that is I look at Belichick and and that's what I admire about him he's gonna he's gonna play his game hmm. and I think so many of our teams and coaches they copy people man it's gonna be extremely hard to find a team that has the type shooters that Golden State has the type bench that they have and guys come in and do the things they do off the bench. And that's why people have made it kind of easy for them to keep winning because nobody can match them. You know, if you beat Steph Curry up, made him post up down low. If you, if you force them to have a center because you were passing the ball in the low post, I mean, you would at that point, they're going to have to change some of the things that they do. But most of our teams have tried to copy their style because that's what they won with. But it's hard to find a team that can match Steph and Clay. Is it they, hard?
2: They, just, they two all time shooters. No, that that's that's valid. That's valid. And 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 I wanted to follow up with that. Um, is it hard to admit that you
0: made a, a wrong call? When I first started officiating, you know, I really wanted to get everything right, and I wanted to be right. But the more that I looked at tape, and the more I studied the game, I realized that I was not going to be one hundred percent every night. It's it's impossible so with that in mind you learn at that point that it's okay to miss a play you can't make that excuse all night you can't say all night you i missed that one. i missed that one. i missed that one no so i set a goal for myself to try to be between 95 and 97 percent every game and that way i knew that the times where the play was suspect i would learn to just keep a player the benefit of the doubt or the coach i'll say hey, man you know you may be right but at the end of the day they knew what I was going to miss, two, three plays, maybe that night, four on a, on a terrible night, two the first half, to the second. So I, I still did a great job. I just didn't work as well as I would have liked to. But I knew that I was not going to miss a lot of plays, but I also understood that I would miss some. What was the best perk about being an NBA referee outside
2: of actually a referee in the best game in the world? Like, did you ever go, like, on planes and stuff, and people are like, that's Derek Stafford and people that pose in for photos. Like, what's the biggest
0: perk that you had as a referee? Well, I don't, I don't know if being recognized all the time is a perk, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, you know, it was a good feeling that people recognized you, especially when they when they understood how tough the game was the night before, and you hung in there and you got through it, and they were able to give you a compliment. Those those certainly were the perks. Uh, you know, going in the store and maybe somebody recognizing you and saying hello and maybe you got a, a break on something. Yeah, so we also receive those type perks just just not at that level because we don't, we're not as noticed and actually you really don't want to be as noticed. Charles
2: Barkley uh, some time ago, uh, actually last year, uh, said that he apologized to Draymond Green after he said he wanted to punch his ass in the face. And he said that he made the apology after speaking with yourself, Michael Wilbon, and Jason Whitlock. Um, how did that conversation go? What made you feel that you needed to step in and tell him that?
0: Well, Charles and I developed a relationship a few years ago, and, and since then we've always we stayed in touch. And, of course, with TNT being in Atlanta, there are times where we've had conversations and there were times he would ask me about rules and things of that nature. But we we developed a, a friendship over the years and and Charles is just one of those guys, you know, he appreciates honesty. And he knows that I'm gonna be one of those guys that's not trying to be one of his boys by always agreeing with what he says. So hmm. he so I just felt like he was wrong. I mean, regardless of what Draymond Green said or did or no matter how he acts. I mean Charles, whether he wants to be a role model or not, you know, people look up to him and he has a forum. He has a forum where he can say certain things. So would you would you want a kid in the seventh grade to get upset with somebody and punch him in the face? Would you want somebody to get upset with your daughter and hit her in the face? I say, Hey man, you gotta think about what you say. I mean, I know where you're coming from, and I know what you mean, but you have to realise how it came off. So I don't know that he really wanted to apologize to Draymond, (laughs) but but I think he realized, you know, what he, what he had said and what he had done was going to have an impact on other people. So uh, he knew to apologize was the right thing. And then plus, you know, we said, Hey man, you, you're going to come off like a bigger man to anybody who knows anything about life. So it's going to work for you both ways. So he was able to come back and say it. I was surprised that he actually said who talked to him, but, you know, I'm glad he listened anyway.
2: He threw the referee to alley What are the odds of that? Excuse me? I said he threw the referee and alley What are the odds of that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Charles is a good guy. He's a funny guy. You know, people like him. He's a very personable guy, but, you know, every now and then he, you know, he, he just says a little too much.
2: For sure, for sure. Scoopy later on the line with Derek Stafford, talking life, talking basketball, talking Charles Barkley, and you. um, And I read that you you encouraged uh, Charles Barkley to do more charity work. Um, You are an outspoken individual. Uh, You're accessible, and 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 you mentor. Um, I would imagine that a lot of that positivity positivity comes from coming to it from an HBCU school. My my parents, my mom and my biological father, both went to Morgan State. How much of going to an HBCU um, impacted your, your daily life and um,
0: making you who you are as a man today? Uh, it was it was tremendous. Uh, for one thing, Morehouse had uh, freshman orientation, freshman assembly, where you would go in and you would listen to people speak. At the time, I, of course, you hated it as a freshman to have to go. And then your sophomore year, you only went once, and you had to go to sophomore assembly. And they would bring in former people, you know, to talk about the Morehouse tradition and and talk about the number of people that weren't going to be able to to make it. And and it was true. You know, my freshman class dropped tremendously compared to my sophomore class. So at that point, you started feeling a little special. And so you started listening to the people when they would come and speak to you. And and successful people, for some reason, they always talk about giving back. So everybody that that came and talked that was one of the major things. And then, so it made me think about the coaches that I've had over the years. It made me think about my first coach who was a janitor at the school, who took time out to coach us. And I think that played a major role in me just wanting to give back. But certainly, uh, you know, going to HBCU and seeing some of the struggles that we have in terms of facilities and, you know, not always having the -the state-of-the-art equipment, state-of-the-art computers, And just seeing how hard the teachers work and then learning later on that they all were pretty much underpaid, but they loved where they were. And so they stayed anyway, even though they could have gone to other places. So because of all of that, you know, I've had a great affection for HBCUs. And, and over the years, I was able to always talk to Charles about giving back. You know, he's a great Auburn guy. And I understand that that's where he went to school and I respect, you know, any athlete that's going to give back to the school that they went to, but I just got him to, you know, drop by the campus sometime. understand where we are. understand how much, you know, HBCU needs, particularly a private institution. That's not getting all of the state funds and it's not as many federal funds as some of the division one schools or, or state schools, should I say. So, and then Samuel Jackson and Spike Lee played a role also because they were you know doing commercials together. And, uh, so uh-huh. I think that added to it because they both were more house guys, so. Thankfully, he went over there and made a donation. You're retired. What do you do with all your free time now? Uh, I have a little office in in Atlanta. Actually, it's in in Riverdale where I try to help younger officials do video work with them because that's the best teaching tool. You know, videotape is the best teaching tool. You can go to all the camps you want, but if somebody can sit down and actually look at what you're doing, uh, that can help you a lot faster. So I do some of that. I do work at my church. In my church, we just built a brand new gym, so we're doing uh, free clinics for the kids. Every Saturday, got a couple coaches come over, work on drills, and I'll get a couple, you know, ex-athletes or current pros to come over, you know, once the summer kicks off, to come over and do some stuff. So standing by that way. Also in my studio, I have a, I mean, in my office, I have a studio. So trying to get some kids off the street, let them come in and try to make music and just, just give them some some time to get away from from the pressures of life and see what they can do in you know, a peaceful, quiet environment. So, you know, yeah, I'm I'm staying pretty busy. Plus, I love golf, so I play as much as I can. I like it. Scoopy Scooby Radio on the line Radio.
2: with Derek Cap, yeah. I'm curious. Uh, this was this was when I was in I think high school and college. But you got suspended by the league for two games for so going at it with Pat Riley, and you told him to go cry on TV. <laughs> what? What is it like going toe-to-toe with
0: Pat Riley? Oh, man. First of all, I got in trouble for saying it. But <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, here's what, another thing people don't understand. You know, referees have personalities as well. And, you know, I've always been one of those guys that tries to be funny sometimes, sarc- sarcastic at times. And I was just sitting in my room the night before, you know, watching Pat Complain about the officiating, complain about this, complain about that, and then when he came up to me during the game, I was just like, "Hey, Pat, proud of TV, man, don't crowd of me," and I, you know, just kind of being kind of funny, and one of the uh, uh, courtside reporters heard it and 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 printed it and off it went. Because I don't think Pat really took it that personally until you know it blew up like it did, but. Like I said, sometimes it's better just not to say anything, but I'm a little sarcastic. I have a little personality. I like to try to be funny every now and then, and it, and it works probably 90% of the time, and at that, that 10%, you just have to pay the price when it backfires.
2: You once told Doug Christie to tell Vlade Divac, this is not the last game of yours I'll be working this season. Vlade's an, ex- <laughs> First of all, Vlade's an executive in Sacramento. Is it kind of interesting to see players when they evolve and they and they grow older in different roles do guys ever come to you and say i'm sorry uh
0: no no one's ever really going to come to you and say sorry uh particularly after the fact like Lottie. but i think you know he knew me well enough to knew that i was never going to try to cheat or uh, call or file him out intentionally but He understood what my message was. My message was that, you know, I will see you again. But, of course, I mean, that was true. I was going to see him again regardless. And that's what I told the league. I said, look, I wasn't – you guys know I'm not going to be vindictive. I'm not going to go in there and just try to take the game from Sacramento or get him in foul trouble. But I I was just trying to calm him down by letting him know, Bloddy, come on now, you will see me again. And it worked. I mean, he calmed down. But, like I said, I had to explain to the NBA what I meant by that. Because Christy did hear me and Lottie heard me, so it was true. So, and I'm I wasn't lot about, about it anyway, but I still had to, you know, let them know what I was, what I really was trying to do. For sure, Vlade
2: Divac and Doug Christie were definitely part of that Sacramento Kings team in 2002 that went toe to toe with the Lakers. As a referee, yeah. that whole Tim heat thing put a black eye on the views of of uh, referees in the NBA. You as a referee, how did you handle
0: that? Uh, it's sad what he did. I mean, Timmy was a was a decent guy for the most part, and he was a pretty good referee. I mean, he just got caught up into some gambling, and, and unfortunately, you know, gambling will get the best of a lot of people. Uh, so, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry that it happened. Of course, it put us under tremendous pressure for a lot of years. You know, people that thought that the league was controlling the games, now they felt like they had evidence, but I know no one has ever said anything to me about a game other than how they wanted me to work, which is, you know, try to get your players, right. Be aware, be aware of certain things that can help you. Uh, Nothing about trying to sway the outcome of a game, but you know, and hopefully people listening will understand and believe that because number one, if any of that was true, it certainly would have come out by more than one person by now. Hmm. Like now, for an example, uh, I don't have any ties to the league. Um, I have my retirement money. You know, I I can be honest and tell the truth. They couldn't sue me for telling the truth. <laughs> they could be mad at me for telling the truth, but they couldn't sue me. So if that were the case, I could say, yeah, David Stern came to me and said he wanted the series to go seven, but that stuff just does not happen. Trust me. You've given me the day
2: in the life of an NBA referee. I've always been curious. You've always been intriguing. Um, Last question, two of the funniest referees, uh, personality-wise, that you got the pleasure of working with and why. Uh,
0: That would probably be Bovetta. Bovetta, number one. Uh, Bovetta and probably Earl Strong. Bovetta probably because he worked at it. I mean, Bovetta is a very, very articulate guy, and he's quick with it. And he's, he's just one of those people that's blessed with that kind of personality, on and off the floor. So he always kept things funny, kept things comical. And that was his way of, of deflecting pressure. So the players were sort of always relaxed around him. They knew he worked hard. He hustled all game. They liked that about him. But he was also funny. He went out of his way to be funny, where most guys don't. Earl Strong was funny because he had his unique and own way of refereeing and he didn't care about the mechanics. He didn't care about our system. He pretty much did it his way, and a lot of times he would do things that would just be hilarious to me. I mean, no one else would probably notice unless they refereed, but that's just the kind of guy Earl was. So they, they both were probably two of the funniest guys because after that, when Darrell sort of really took the reign, I mean, everything was pretty serious, so particularly on the floor. Now, off the floor, believe it or not, you really don't get to know that many guys as well because, you know, you go home and you try to catch up with family and you might take one or two vacations. You know, everybody feel like you've been on vacation anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> you come home and you really try to grind with your family and your few close friends that you have. So you don't really get to know a lot of the guys on staff very well. But just on the surface, those two guys were always funny to me. You heard it first, Derek Stafford. A certain honor to have you on the podcast, and we must do this again. Yes, we will. Hey, man, just call me. Let me know. Uh, I have a little more free time now, so I'll be more than happy. You heard it first. Scoopy Radio, Derek Stafford, over and out. Thank you,
2: brother. Thank you. Thank you. you. Scoopy Radio.